the writer and home cook, Nigella Lawson, says in her latest book that if she could ban any phrase from the face of the earth, it would be this one, guilty pleasure. Because she told us recently, and this is something she feels profoundly, taking pleasure in the food we eat is an act of gratitude. The other day, I went to see some friends of mine whose eight-month-old baby has just started eating what we so unappealingly call solids. It was feeding time when I got there, and the way his little toes curled up with pleasure every time a spoonful of mush was lowered into his mouth, the way he pumped his padded, dimpled fists as plump as overstuffed dumplings and gurgled with almost drunken delight was such a joy to witness. A piercing reminder of what we can so easily lose. This was pure pleasure. It occupied his whole body, his entire being. And I think that when I eat, and particularly when I eat alone, I can get suffused with a similar joy. I don't pump my little fists, and they certainly don't look padded and plump, the less. But I do feel that sense of being so pleasurably overwhelmed and so grateful for that. It makes such a difference to my day. It is almost as if it's pleasure at a cellular level. I think there's a lot of fear around food. We're being told constantly, it's bad for you to eat that and it's bad for you to eat this. And then everything changes. So what you were told was bad for you before is now suddenly good for you. And what was good for you now is like, you shouldn't really have so much of that. And so pleasure is complicated because they berate themselves and persecute themselves. That mentality distorts everything. You know, I have certain friends who like, if they come round for dinner, they go, oh, no, no dessert for me. So I say, fine. And then we all have a slice. And a friend of mine will be not having any. And then I see her cutting incredibly thin slices and then eating a bit in a stealthy way. And by the end of the evening, she's eaten more than everyone else and feels bad about it and hasn't allowed herself that sort of abandonment of pleasure. And I think that is so unhelpful. But I fear that people who don't allow themselves to enjoy foods they feel they shouldn't be eating somehow don't enjoy the other foods as well because then it's like they're in that prison of only eating broccoli. Do you know what I mean? I think that it's so important not to sully something as pure as the pleasure you get from eating. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. For those less familiar, Nigella Lawson became well-known for a television program in the early 2000s called Nigella Bites. She also writes cookbooks, which for her are more than just an instruction manual for how to construct a dish. She's described a recipe as a magical undertaking anchored in practicality. Lawson has identified the role she plays on TV and in her books as part enthusiast, 
part troubleshooter. She's a guide in the kitchen, not its ruling monarch. Her latest is called Cook, Eat, Repeat, a title she told us is the story of her life. Well, I feel that whenever I have a memory, that memory often is little captures around my table eating. And at a sort of deeper level, I feel that the constant in my life has been the preparing of meals, the thinking about food, different stages in my life maybe uh, have introduced new recipes or I've traveled and I I've eaten something I hadn't ever eaten at home. But then I go back and I add to it and often it's through this repetition that ease comes in the kitchen. You know, it's very difficult. Yeah. People often think that cooking is you don't cook at all in the regular way of things. And then suddenly they want to be planning a dinner party for 10. And I just think it's like saying, I, I think I'm going to start driving and I'll go and do Formula One next week. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. Cooking is what happens in, in ordinary life more. I love cooking for friends and I did miss feeding people um, during all the lockdowns, but I adore cooking anyway and feeding myself. I, I There's something so wonderful. And that's why I also think, you know, for people who are nervous in the kitchen, they must cook just for themselves. Something happens. It's the best teacher. When you cook for yourself, your shoulders are a bit lower because you're not so filled with fear at, the judgments that might be passed it's you're not you're not waiting for this evaluation it's not like an exam you need to pass you're making your supper you're making your dinner and you're fine you're going opening your fridge or you're going through a store cupboard and seeing what you can make and because you're not worried things don't go wrong food food behaves a bit like small children they can smell fear and <laughs> so i so I think in a way, once you're cooking just for yourself and then observe the process, be part of it. And I think that teaches you to enjoy cooking more because we all live in, in our heads these days. The amount of words and messages and mm. screens that feature in our life, there's something about putting that down and you're touching the ingredients, you're feeling the texture of them, you're smelling them. Your intelligence has to leave your mind and take up residence in your fingertips, in, in how you, the, your sense of smell, even your hearing, because when you cook long enough, you notice that onions make a different sound as they get more cooked in the pan. And that's why cooking can be such a de-stressing activity, but it's, but it, it, in all honesty, I mean, I have never, never written a complicated recipe. I don't have the wherewithal. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's, there's always an element of stress when you're cooking for other people, unless they're people you know, that are, you know so well. But even then, because you want to please and you want it to be right, and that can somehow throttle that sense of being at one with your ingredients and the stove and feeling sort of safe and reassured in the kitchen. Instead, sometimes this element, this fear of being judged, it's everywhere. It's, it, and it becomes more and more 
pronounced, I think, in contemporary life. And that's why I think just cooking for yourself, it can be a wonderful way of throwing that aside and just feeling that you're trying to cook yourself something good to eat. And if you made a mistake and it didn't work, as long as you don't poison yourself, it's not the end of the world. You don't want to waste expensive ingredients. But that's why, you know, I think it's essential as someone who writes recipes that you make sure things don't go wrong. I test recipes so often because I want to present them in such a way that I can really explain what happens at each stage. If you want brief recipes, I'm not your woman, but I think that sometimes a long recipe is long not when I write it, not because it's complicated, because I really want to be in the kitchen with the cook. We are two mm-hmm. cooks together and we're cooking and it, you need to explain more, I think. It, more words often means more ease for the cook. Well, you, you write about how when you first started writing recipes that you had to learn another language is how you yes. put it. H- how – as I understand it, so I guess for you it wasn't about just laying out these precise descriptions, but it had to start with your – as you sort of say in the book, your linguistic interest first. It had to be rooted in a reader's imagination I think is how you put it. Yes. So I think you have – that I'm not just giving instructions. I'm trying to evoke – what cooking that particular recipe feels like, and indeed, what particular balance I'm going for, why I add a certain ingredient. Because I think in, in ideally, a recipe should teach something of the nature of cooking itself, not just equip you to cook that particular recipe. Mm. But again, this is about returning to recipes and really, I suppose, letting the cook get confident enough to make her or his own modifications or adding something different, because you can do that when you feel you've understood what's going on. This latest book uh, has been Mm -hmm. described as your most writerly book yet. Do you think that's right? I don't know. I think it's when I, when I finished it, I thought, Oh, it's quite a companion piece to my first book, How to Eat, which had Mm. a lot of writing in it. And funnily enough, when I started writing How to Eat, I didn't know I was going to write recipes. I'd been a journalist when I was 26. I was the deputy literary editor of the Sunday Times of London. Mm. And then I, after a while, I thought, do you know, I'm not in the right job. I'm going to be, you know, when you do this next stop, literary editor and then department head. And I realized, I realized I had no interest ever in having power over people. And I thought, and what's more, I feel I'm being paid to worry and not to think. And so I felt, I was thought mad at the time. You know, I uh, (laughs) chucked in a staff contract at the Times to do, to write pieces. And I started off writing features and reviewing books And then after a while, I became a columnist, an op-ed columnist, but I still reviewed the odd book. And then I thought, oh, I'll give, I'll try a bit of restaurant reviewing. But, and I, and so when I started uh, How to Eat, I, I didn't know there would be recipes. I thought I'd be talking about food, but, you know, I cooked all my life. I was 38 uh, when my first book came out and I cooked all my life. So it was really everything I'd cooked, you know, (laughs) forever and what I felt about food in general. And so I suppose this is a, a slightly like a follow-up. But, of course, <laughs> there's a, there are a lot of years since then. It was 98. Mm-hmm. So 
even though I haven't radically altered my views and I don't think my voice has changed, I don't see how it could. Nevertheless, you know, the more you cook and the more you think about cooking, you do come to different conclusions, perhaps. But I love the freedom um, of writing without everything having to hit some format that feels Mm. foreign to me Mm. or that fits into a traditional headnote. There's so much I want to say about a recipe, why it earns its place in my home and why I, I want to share it and where it comes from and what it leads to, what you can make with the leftovers, what, what you can do when you're substituting ingredients, how, you know, trying to say to people, for example, when you have to substitute something, you have to concentrate on the properties of the ingredient you're substituting. If you want to substitute, you don't want to use bacon or you haven't got any bacon, well, that gives you fat and salt. So you're, it's pretty rare that you can hmm. find an exact same in, ingredient with those two properties. So maybe you're going to major more on the salt. Um, or maybe you think, no, I can add a bit of salt. So, you know, so maybe you'd say, I'm going to do salted olives. But then you think, well, that's not giving me the fat. Maybe the fat is more important. I mean, you can play with it in various ways. But unless you say to people that's how to approach it, it, it somehow doesn't help because I think for many people, many readers of recipes, they feel they have to ask permission from the writer of the recipe to swap out an ingredient. And, hmm. and I think that shackles them. You know, I was, I was looking at what, what people were saying about how to eat when it first came out. The New York Times said that it was, let's see, how did they put it? It marked a step away from technical chef-written cookbooks toward a mm. philosophy of cooking that was about pleasing oneself. And it really caught on. It was an incredibly successful book. Why do you think it caught on like that? Was it that, that it was about something other than the technical? It was about pleasure. That was I think it's so hard to know. And, yeah. you know, if I think about it too deeply, I don't know what it'll do to me. And <laughs> one has to have a certain amount of unself-consciousness to carry on writing, I think. Yeah. The balance between self-awareness and unself-consciousness, a hard one sometimes. But I think, actually, it was more to do with the fact that it was written from the perspective of a home cook. And what's more, a home cook, uh, yeah, at the time when I did it, I had mm. a terminally ill husband, a baby and a toddler, yeah. and and a job. I was still a working journalist. Um, and so... It was written much more from that perspective. You know, how are people going to fit in the shopping? How was I going to fit it in? So it's one of the things I have, which is I will never, I hate, I won't ever send people to the shops for an ingredient you use in one recipe. I mean, it's too annoying. I'm, I'm always mindful of the washing up because that's the doing the dishes is the least attractive part of cooking. And so I think it was just written just from someone who'd never learned anything. I learned to cook at home because... My mother, you know, believed in child labor. I don't know if I should say that these days. But, you know, so we, she got us cooking from a young age. Oh, it was quite sexist. She got the her, the daughters cooking at a young mm. age. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, I think the thing is you think about food differently in that way. And even though there are some wonderful books written by chefs, on the whole, they do sometimes demand a level 
of ability or maybe dexterity, I should say, that mm. I don't possess and pe people don't have time for. Because obviously, when it when you can spend all afternoon on it, on something, is very different when you're when you have to fit it in between picking up the kids from school and mm. filing a column. And I think it was really more that. And one of the things that had prompted me in that book, and I think about all the time, is I'd gone around to a friend's for dinner, and she did the most elaborate meal. I'm like. <laughs> I've never, and, and then in between courses, too many courses, um, we could hear her sobbing in the kitchen. I mean, it was a nightmare. And we were all tense, and frankly, we'd have had a better evening if she just got pizzas delivered. You know, yeah. it's yeah. the, the yeah. thing is, you're sharing food with friends. And I, so I felt I wanted to write from the perspective of, of a home cook, but also to say, the idea is not to pretend your house is a restaurant. Nigella Lawson. Her newest book is Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. There's something you write early in the in the latest book I wanted to ask you about, and it's the it's kind of the way you put it that I wanted to ask you because you say that when things, the things that you're cooking become this is how you put it our food. Mm. Um, you say when it eases its way into our that's when it eases its way into our repertoire. It becomes our food. Mm. These are the ones that we return to and the ones that we repeat. Say a little bit more about that. And what are those dishes that, that make their way into the repertoire for, for you? Well, it, I'll take it back from the, f from the difference between a recipe and how you cook at home or a the, the sort of authority a, a recipe seems to confer. Mm. Um, cooking, as I say in, in Cook, Eat, Repeat, you know, cooking like life is an improvisational art. Right. And you kind of, you know things, you work things out, and you see how you go. So I might do a pasta recipe often, just say, for example, spaghetti carbonara. Mm. Now, my, the way I do it is slightly informed by a Marcella Hazan recipe when she puts some white wine onto the wonderful bronzed crisp bacon or, you know, guanciale, yeah. and then you let it bubble up and it's a wonderful, it becomes this wonderful winey, bacony syrup. I, and I, for example, always use vermouth. I, sh I know it's vermouth, but I've mispronounced it all my life and I can't change <laughs> now. Um, dry white vermouth. And because I, I don't drink all the time, I'm not going to open a bottle of wine to make, a dish when I'm using maybe a quarter of a cup of it. Hmm. But vermouth, you've got a screw top and you and it lasts. Now, so that's the way I do it. Someone else doing that recipe in, with mine, I uh, would say, and would, it doesn't want to drink at all, doesn't want to add that, or will add a, maybe they fancy it with, does, you know, they leave that out. It becomes theirs, but you have to cook something very often so that it's, you're not always anxiously looking at a recipe. Am I meant to be doing that? When I write a recipe, um, you know, I, so say I'm writing a recipe, you know, like I've got a stew in a stew for beef mm. cheeks with chestnuts and port. Now the number of leeks I put in it the first time was probably dominantly dictated by how many leeks I had in my, in the vegetable drawer of my <laughs> fridge. And right. suddenly it becomes 
a recipe and it looks like that's all that you're meant to add. Now, we can add more or less of these things. It's not going to ruin it. And people have to settle into that so that when they start cooking it, mm. they just feel, oh, I've just seen I've got, you know, that I've got, I want to use up more, I want to use up some carrots. So I'm going to put them in. It's always going to work. You just know you're adding a bit more sweetness to it. Um, so I think it's about that thing of, a recipe has to get into your bloodstream a bit. Now, when my children were little, I used to say, yeah, you can pick a recipe and you can, but you must then cook it once a week for us all um, for this whole month. So by the end of the month, they're never going to have to look or consult or ask again because they've gotten to the habit of cooking it. it mm. So it doesn't mm. seem daunting. Mm. And I think there's this... Perhaps now every, we, so, we so want new, new, new all the time. Mm. So mm. that it's like, oh, I've done that recipe. Now what's the next recipe I can do? Someone I know who, um, she's not a food person, but she's obsessed with it all and she cooks a lot. But she says that she hasn't repeated a recipe in three years. And that would fill me with panic. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting repetition in cooking because you're not really repeating because every time you cook it, it's somehow a bit different. Yeah. But I think it's also about the repetition of certain uh, processes, which is, you know, sometimes when I'm exhausted, I feel like, oh, God, I've got to peel and chop an onion. And then why that should suddenly feel like a big task. But the minute I've got the knife in my hand and my chopping board out, it's as if my hands recognize this is a familiar practice. And... They feel at home with that, and I feel at home with it. You know, mm. so I think that the more you do of those very, the boring tasks, the peeling of potatoes and so on, those are the things that punctuate nearly every recipe. You're, that even when you try something that seems new to you, I mean, you know, if we're talking about home food still, mm. you're mm. still relying on practices and acts that you know. I mean, that aren't unfamiliar and I think it's very important so if you break it down into that oh yeah I can oh yeah peeling an onion oh yeah you know mincing some garlic mm. all that is chopping some parsley those things or then maybe you're chopping some cilantro or and then you perhaps suddenly come across the wonderfulness of Thai basil and you're using that instead so all in all you're you're just transferring something which is very mundane and and and, and regular every day but you can, that you apply that to really nearly all dishes that can be cooked. Mm. And I also do feel some, I do feel there is something to be said for mindless repetitive activities in the, you know, in the decompressing front. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the, the food in, in the latest book. Um, can, can we talk about the bacon of the sea? And the bacon of the sea, the anchovies that I love so much. Well, you do. You say anchovies are of the essence. Just say something about that as an ingredient. Well, I yes. So one of the things I adore about anchovies is what they can lend to a dish when they don't have the starring role. I love it when they have the starring role. Hmm. Absolutely. One of my favorite things to eat is good bread, good butter, thick slices of bread, thick layer of butter mm. and then a lattice of beautiful anchovies, uh, anchovy fillets on top that I love. But if when you're cooking, say 
a lamb stew or beef stew if after you've softened uh, the onion and it's and it's beginning to be golden and caramelized if then you stir in some anchovy fillets you don't even have to chop them you stir them in they seem to melt into the pan mm. now you wouldn't know when you ate the stew later that it had anchovies in i don't think but what you notice is not that it's you know the thing that people would expect it's not the saltiness an anchovy gives but it's much as this is an overused buzzword it's the umami, the depth, the mm. fact that it's like introducing instant bass notes. And I think that cooking is like music in that way. Everything needs to be balanced. An anchovy, when you cook it for a long time, gets deeper and rumblier. But when you, if you were to add it to a dish or a dressing, you know, and, and not cook it and it's quite quick, mm. then in, you get much higher note from it and there's something almost more clarinet-like mm. about it. And I, I think that that is one of the joys of cooking. But anchovies can, as far as I'm concerned, they don't make things look beautiful always, but, but I'm not a huge fan of cooked carrots. I mean, except in a soup or something, but as a vegetable. But my goodness, if you were to just melt, as I say, which is just cook some anchovy fillets in butter or olive oil and then toss the cooked carrots, the boiled carrots and that, I mean, it looks a bit murky. Um, you're losing all the bright colour, but my goodness, what vividness of flavour you get. And again, that's the balance, the sweetness of carrots mm. against that uh, rather sort of smoky deep saltiness of the anchovies. And th it's that sort of curious alchemy. It isn't the carrots plus anchovy. It becomes something else. It becomes something, you know, the, the, the flavors are united. And that is, you shouldn't notice every element necessarily when, when, when things taste good. You don't need to, mm. because it's how they fuse together that's the magic of cooking. What's the note in the chocolate peanut butter cake? I mean, and this surprised me because, as you say in the book, as much as you love baking dessert, it was not something that you – it's not something you have every day at your house. So No, it isn't. Um, and, you know, we're not a sweet-toothed family. I do right. adore baking. I mean, I like sweet things, but are not – I wouldn't want to have them every day. Yeah. But, hmm. you know, it, it's, it just happens to be – um, along with the lasagna of love, it has such emotional reson resonance for me. It's the, the those two are the recipes I cook for, you know, my children's birthdays or if they come back from being away or uh, any family celebration when sometimes the fact that, you know, people want the same thing again. They want to know they're coming back and they know what it's going to taste like. And, and this, I, is the, this is the cake of the cake, right? This is the chosen the, one. The, this is the chosen cake. Yeah. This is the chosen cake. And actually, because there's heavy cream hmm. in the uh, peanut butter buttercream and a bit of salt, it's lighter. It, it's lighter hmm. and moussier. And I think that... The reason why I know a lot of people who don't eat peanut butter like this cake is because, of course, texture is always more problematic for people than taste. When babies don't like eating something, eating something, it's nearly always because they find the texture difficult, not the mm. taste. Mm. And so mm. when you make this moussey light buttercream, that that claggy texture of, of peanut butter, which Nicholson Baker 
describes it as glottally claustrophobic, <laughs> um, that goes away. And instead, there's some lightness and it's, it's, it, it has a gentleness that you don't expect from peanut butter, which is very uncompromisingly what it is. Mm. We got our first layer of snow here in Salt Lake City. And so I'm starting to think, and we've been talking about food for the season. Uh, I'm thinking about your root vegetable mash. You want to say something about food for this time of the year? Oh, well, you know, the food for this time of year is the best food, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 you know, it really is like, you know, the mellow fruitfulness. So the root vegetable mash, which, you know, I cook with, you know, I, you know, I can look at, you know, you call it rutabaga, don't you? I mm -hmm. always have to look at the American book because, of course, some words have yeah. to be translated. But it's so wonderful and it's so it's a rather wonderful uplifting mash it's not as heavy as mash made with the potato which i happen to adore and i don't heavy is not heavy and mashed potato are not words that are discordant together <laughs> but i but i think there's something about the root vegetable mash that can be wonderful particularly because it's so beautifully colored and much as i don't mm. like to be influenced too much by um, whether something is pretty or not, it somehow is uplifting on the plate next to something slow cooked and brown and formless. Mm. And I think that it's perhaps, although I like repetition, I also think it's so easy to get into a rut um, cooking at home. And, and sometimes you, do, you want to, you do want to introduce something different. So maybe you think, oh, I'll just do mashed potatoes. And actually when you do root vegetables, and funnily enough, it's an incredible partner, root vegetables, mash, it's an incredible partner to, to fish. And I don't know why that should be so, white fish or any fish actually with, with this mash. And I think it's because it's not so heavy that it somehow swamps the palate when you eat. But having said that, at this time of year is when I start cooking a dish which I think is quite suited for the holidays, uh, I'd say since they're near, which is an Irish sort of take on mashed potato, which I have in here called Cole Cannon, which is, mm, mm. Um, which is generally mashed potatoes and with cooked cabbage or kale mixed in with it and then a lot of butter on top. Now I've done it with brown butter, which I mm. adore and a lot of brown butter and um, it has scallions on top. And for the last bit of cooking, I put the scallions into the brown butter and then mix everything together. You don't need to peel potatoes because it's meant to be textured and you have cabbage in it anyway. So that makes it easier. But it is such a wonderful dish. And it's like mashed potatoes, but both cozier and yet more luxurious. And I suppose that's the brown butter. But it's things like that, that in a sense, brown butter makes people think they have to know something. No, you just have to know to stand by your stove and let the butter bubble away for about seven minutes. And then, of course, then, so of course, in the book, I want to give suggestions for other use of this. If someone's brown some butter, you don't want to eat, you think, oh, that was delicious. What, how else can I eat this? Mm. And then you hope that people just start making their own mind up if they want. But I'm I'm just one of life's enthusiasts. I'm always, I mean, I just, if I take pleasure in something, it means more to me if I share that. You know, mm. I want other people to get the joy of it too. Well, it makes me also think about my mother-in-law, like your mother, was a child mm. in Britain during the war. And yeah. she has this incredible gift for making 
a meal and not just an ordinary meal, but something really delicious out of things that are in the back of the fridge, a leftover. It's amazing. Yes. You see, I think that is where creativity starts, you know, um, Mm. because of course, I mean, it's often very hard to reproduce in a recipe because you can't presume everyone's going to have those leftovers, but that's why I always like to make suggestions for what to do with leftovers for, you know, for a particular dish. But also I think that in which case she probably also, I was brought up like you could never waste anything because that, you know, I grew up with people who could remember rationing as as your mother-in-law would. Mm. And in a way there's something so particularly satisfying about using up odds and ends. And I have more freezer bags of breadcrumbs and stale bread in my freezer than I, anyone should really, because I don't want to throw bread away, even if it is stale, because I can use it to make a Tuscan bean soup or, mm. uh, you know, to make breadcrumbs to go on top of a gratin and, mm. or to go into meatballs. And it, there's something that happens in cooking at home where each ingredient you have leads to one thing, then to another, then to another. I mean, and I think that's, I mean, for example, I have a recipe and I can't remember what book it was in. I think Nigelissima, that's, I call Italian roast chicken. And it's a roast chicken with leeks and red bell peppers and olives. And you roast everything together. They're every, they're, so the vegetables are so sweet and soused as well with the chickeny juices. And I had, you know, I had a sort of the world's smallest saucer with a couple of leek chunks, log, little logs of leek um, left over from the last time I made it. And I just decided in the evening, what can I do? And I had a bit of end of some cheese, which seen better days. And I just made an omelette out of it. And there's something about some uh, goat's gouda, which I adore, and um, the caramelized leeks and the eggs. And it worked so well. And yet... To write a recipe for that would seem like so who wants to wait? Who wants to have the oven on for that long and to wait <laughs> to cook the leeks for an omelette? But it was just divine. And it's that sort of thing, those sudden moments. But then next time I write a recipe that involves leeks cooked in that way, I'll know to mention it. That's Nigella Lawson. Her latest book is called Cook, Eat, Repeat Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. Her latest book is called Cook, Eat, Repeat. You mention in the book how people who buy cookbooks are just as interested in the stories as they are the recipes. And you write about this in, in the latest book. Um, you write but I think the story has to be more than anecdotes. I, I, I think anecdotes aren't what I want. It's where does this food come from? Well, talk about in, talk about in, and also about where you know what it means. Yeah, we'll talk about in memory's kitchen because you refer to that. Yes, in this part of the book, and just these women telling, you know, stories as a way of sustaining yes. themselves. Yeah. So women in a women in a concentration camp, you know, having hardly anything to eat, stripped of everything, not knowing if they'd ever get back home. And obviously they, they're just because of their identity, 
their Jewish identity. And therefore, what became incredibly important, just one, to hold on to their identity was discussing, you know, all the, the, their recipes and what they wanted to cook when they were back home or what they remembered. And, but also, I suppose, feeding themselves in, in memory and imagination. And what sort of made it so real to me, I think, as well, is the fact that these sort of arguments would break out. No, you do it all wrong. The onions go in first and they, you must, they must be sliced thinly, not chopped. And the fact that it was so alive, holding on to how everyone has a slightly different take on the recipes that we all share. And I, and I found that so incredibly moving. That is that food expresses us at our deepest level in a way. But a lot of the things that bring us back to certain dishes is because we remember the context in which we used to eat them. And that obviously, it doesn't have to be the tragedy of being in a concentration camp for that to have weight either. You said it's like a novel, a recipe, a collaboration between the writer and the reader. I... I, yes, I, and as I say, and a reader is the person who keeps it alive. A right. recipe written on a page is nothing until someone cooks it. Now, it still means something to me. I cook it, but just there. But it's when it's cooked and it's the re- and when it becomes somehow something that you that you don't. I mean, no one owns a recipe. Everything is a bit of a patchwork of everything right. else that came before. I think it's important to credit that. But even beyond that, I think that it beca- it would be just like a vanity project or maybe or scholarship, which is fine because there is scholarship in recipes, you mm. know, and some people can write in a different way and they're not necessarily recipes then to be cooked from, but uh, to, to take historical interest in. But nevertheless, the recipes that you write to be cooked, they, don't, they only start living when other people cook them and they somehow take up residence in other people's houses. And it's an, an extraordinarily, it's an extraordinary thing. And I've had people come to book signings and tell me of something they did differently. And I've actually added that to later editions sometimes mm. because it's very much a collaborative project, isn't it? Culture and food mm. is obviously a part of that. Well, you write in, in Feast, you write about how you st- I'm not sure if you still do this, but how you did anyway, throw a matchstick. Into yeah, I don't the... do that now. Yes, okay. <laughs> into my eggs. Boiling. Into I your don't eggs. boil eggs. Well, no, well, I that was my... yes, because my because my aunt Frida did it. Yeah, I well, know. I, just, I liked that passing along of these these things that you do it. You're not sure why, but you do it because somebody else did it. Um, yes, and there's a story I tell in Cookie Repeat, which I've told before, which always amused me, and a story that my late mother-in-law told me when she was listening <laughs> to uh, Radio 4, which is, you know, like NPR. Yeah. And um, they were talking about cooking and, and, you know, what you inherit and dishes that stay with families. And this woman was talking about, it was a three-generation family, and the, the youngest of this uh, the, the daughter saying uh, when she she makes a kind of pot roast recipe mm. and it started the recipe, they asked her to read it out and it was just written on a bit of paper and it was cut the ends off the meat. And that's what she'd always seen being done. And and they said, well, why do you do that? I mean, you weren't just to, to know you weren't meant to throw them away. This isn't about waste. And she went, oh, I don't know. My mum does it. 
And they said, can we speak to your mother? So the mother came on and said, oh, I did it because my mother and other grandmother were still there. And she went, do you both do that? I just did it because my casserole wasn't, was, you know, was too small for the meat that I got. And then she carried on doing it and they'd always seen that. But somehow it becomes the folklore of the recipe. Mm. I, for example, when I peel zucchini, I have, I do them like my mother did and I do them in stripes. So, you know, cause she said you too much of the green skin makes things bitter, but it, they lose form and it just uh, somehow get too watery when you have no skin. So I take my vegetable peeler and I do stripes. So it looks, uh, you know, it's, um, that's how it looks. And that's how I peel zucchini. That's how my children peel their zucchini. I mean, because that's what they've always seen. And I think that I feel particularly, you know, my mother died very young mm. at 48. So obviously my children um, have never met her. So for me, certain ways, those things I pass on, have, you know, that my mother's cooking lives on for her grandchildren who she never met is something that's so important to me. Well, I wanted to ask you, it sort of brings us back to this idea of pleasure that you write about in the book. I wonder if, would you mind saying something about what you write about your mother saying that how it really wasn't until a few weeks before she died? of Yes, yes. My mother, my mother knew she was dying very, very shortly before her death, two weeks. And she said to me, this is the first time I've ever, I've eaten without feeling guilty. And I just thought, this is the most dreadful thing to, to have to wait to be terminally ill to do that. And I, it's sort of like everything I feel is in opposition to that. And, you know, life is fleeting. You know, we know that. Um, we don't know what lies in store. Think, and, and the days can be difficult. Therefore, it's it's almost like a sacred duty to take, for me, to take pleasure in everything that is pleasurable. And, you know, joys don't come as huge bouquets and spotlights necessarily. Mm. It's those small blossoming of something beautiful or that the taste when you have a, take your first spoonful of, of something, of food that you love. And I feel those things make such a difference to life and to have to plod through everything without the sudden lighting up of your pleasure receptors and your actually it's not just pleasure is it's for me it is actually joy there's something that makes me feel so grateful and so happy to be alive now there are other things that do that not just not just eating, but eating is such an elemental part of it because eating, you know, is the basic, you know, fulfills our basic need as well. So it's not frivolous. It's not that, you know, that I have anything against, you know, moments of frivolity. We need those too. But it's not a frivolous pleasure. It's a, it's a life-affirming pleasure. It's very hard to speak of these things without getting into cliche. I'm aware of that. But those things are so important. And to punish yourself by not allowing yourself to take pleasure in what you eat or 
actually to be too busy to notice it. That's another, you know, a lot of people, mm. you know, uh, eat, uh, eating where they do something else. I find that is, it's difficult because I sort of want to be subsumed by the joy of eating. Let me ask finally, um, I won't hold you to the fact that this may still not be your favorite breakfast, but when you wrote in Feast that it, your favorite was a boiled egg, malden salt, and buttered bread, those my, my mother-in-law calls them soldiers, the little bread fingers. It, um, I don't know, do you still carry malden salt around? I do, and Coleman's English mustard. I've got right. lots in my packing pile. Um, yes, I, do you know, one of the things I've allowed myself to do as well is, uh, is I suddenly realized I, you know, I've, I'm always ready to eat except at breakfast time, but I've always thought you're meant to eat breakfast. And re so in the last three years, I slightly abandoned that, but you know, I work from home mostly. So if I want my breakfast at 1130, even though, though I get, you know, might've been up since 515, that's fine too. But when I wrote about that with the boiled egg, which I would mush up on the toast, mm. I, at that stage was still frightened of poaching eggs. And I felt it was, oh God, I can't do that. And, uh, and I, um, I found a method that suited me. I actually wrote about it on my website about as well about, and, and for a magazine about these fears in cooking hold us back. And it's a bit like I didn't start baking until, you know, in my late thirties really, because I thought I was a cook, not a baker. And then I started baking. And I, you know, I thought this is so easy. What a scam. And uh, everyone, you know, is mythologize it. And it, and so I, and in fact, my second book was just, you know, the, the rather, the certainly camp, but definitely was meant to be ironic, how to be a domestic goddess, which was just about baking because I was so full and of the joy of it and evangelical about spreading the word. Because at that stage, it was slightly like people did in the olden days and baking had stopped being, not, it, this is not true really in, you know, in America, where the rural baking tradition has never really diminished in any way, but it mm. certainly had here, I think. Mm. Um, and it's wonderful in the same way as with, with poaching an egg, you know, and that shame, like I'm meant to know I'm a food writer. So, and I feel that shame interferes with our life more than almost anything else, shame and fear, and they, they can dog a life. And so for me, my, maybe my way through often is in the kitchen. And just thinking, no, I am someone who can bake, or I am someone who can poach an egg. I poach an egg now, um, and so I will have poached egg on toast. But that somehow we, you know, we're so quick to define ourselves and and by those definitions, you know, limit ourselves. I'm not the sort of person who can do that. And there's and it may be something that in the, that applies to cooking or it may be in the world I'm not you know when I was younger the idea that I would be standing on a stage and talking to people I would I mean I would have said of course that won't happen you we just think oh I'm not the sort of person who can do that I'm too nervous for that or I can't do that but maybe that's not true and maybe 
don't think of an audience as a hostile crowd ready to be sneering and judgmental. Maybe they're there because they're interested in the same things as you and you've got to be present and then also listen and respond and be there in the moment, not somehow feel you're in an alien space. You're talking about something you love with other people and that's a that's a wonderful thing to be able to do and it's and it's a wonderful conversation to have so i think it's it's that we just do that so often and for me often i've found a way perhaps sometimes to learn to be braver in other spheres of my life by realizing that something i spent my whole life being frightened to do poaching neg is like something i wouldn't even give a thought to now nigella lawson thank you very much Oh, thank you. Nigella Lawson. Her newest book is Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Story. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. Our intern is Andrew Christiansen, the program produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 